Head coach Nick Nurse says his team can still take the championship title. Game six is at Oracle Arena on Thursday. Meanwhile, the Golden State Warriors are slamming Raptors fans who cheered when Kevin Durant was injured during last night's game. Global News Radio's Brianna Carnegie has more. It was in the second quarter when Kevin Durant made a quick move to his left. And as we heard on ESPN, that's when he crumpled to the hardwood, clutching the Achilles tendon in his right leg. They don't like to hear the fans yeah, cheering. I, I'm surprised by that. Then followed the chance of KD. Golden State's Draymond Green called the crowd's initial response classless, while Steph Curry was shocked. It's not my experience with, you know, the people of this city. Curry stressed this is about an individual, a human being, and hopes that ugliness doesn't show itself again in the series. Brianna Carnegie, Global News Radio. Back closer to home now, Anova is urging all levels of government to take action after compiling data showing 2018 was a record year for the agency. In a statement, the agency says it was forced to turn away women over 2,500 times last year due to a lack of shelter beds. It also says it received on average 31 calls a day to its crisis and support line and offered over 900 hours of sexual assault counseling. 75 people are on the wait list for sexual assault services. More than a year and a half after allegations first came to light, a St. Thomas police officer has resigned from the department and pleaded guilty to a criminal charge. Police Chief Chris Harridge issued a statement this morning regarding Constable Gary Christensen. The update said allegations about Christensen were first brought forward in September 2017. Police contacted the Special Investigations Unit and Christensen was placed on suspension. The SIU charged Christensen with a number of sex-related offenses. He resigned from his position yesterday. Today, St. Thomas police say he pleaded guilty to one count of sexual interference. The sentencing phase begins in September. OPP says its officers in rural Ontario are not immune to the opioid crisis. The Forces Opioids and Overdoses Impacts and Strategies report shows that officers saved 55 lives by administering naloxone between September 2017 and March of this year. It showed over the last three years, the number of suspected drug overdoses in OPP jurisdictions has increased from 620 in 2016 to 1,373 last year. Of those, 144 were fatal, and police believe 95 of them involved opioids. In 2018, there were 205 occurrences where fentanyl was seized in an OPP jurisdiction, with the West Region accounting for 36% of the seizures. West Region covers the area in and around London. Local employers don't seem to think they'll, they'll be doing a lot of hiring over the next three months. New stats released through the Manpower Group Employment Outlook Survey show just about 10 uh, percent of employers plan to hire for the upcoming quarter. The remaining 90 percent plan to maintain current staffing levels. The survey shows London's third quarter net employment outlook is down seven percentage points compared to the previous quarterly survey. But Manpower Group says the market is expected to grow through the next quarter. And if you're traveling downtown, there is a lane closure you'll want to keep in mind this week. The north lane of King Street will be closed between Clarence and Richmond today through Friday from 9 in the morning to 9 at night. The closures to allow for work by London Hydro crews. The bus stops east of Richmond will be closed during that time. You're listening to 980 CFPL. If you leave something out in plain sight, even if it's yours, I'm not talking about a cheese sandwich that you no longer wish to eat. I'm talking about something that belongs to you. If you leave something out in plain sight, 
what expectations should you have for it? There's a reason that bike locks exist. You can't leave your bike out in plain sight. It sounds stupid, but somebody's going to come along and take that thing away. Now, look at the complications we have with bike locks. We've got morons running around with battery-powered grinders getting through locks. We've got people who know what they're talking about in the bike industry saying, yeah, there's nothing you can do about that. They're just going to come along and you just have to hope they like somebody else's bike better. Police auction time, get the ugliest bike that you possibly can just to get you around. But when it's not a bike, let's say, for example, and as we see more high-rises pop up that may or may not have in-suite laundry, I don't know what their plans are, but we've got apartment buildings that do have shared laundry facilities. You've got college students in this town, university students in this town, shared laundry facilities, some that make use of one of the many laundromats in London, Ontario. Let's say it's your laundry. What if you put your laundry in and then you go and run an errand? Because your laundry's in there sometimes, depends on the machine, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes by the time it goes through the cycle. What should your expectation be? There is a woman who now is being circulated all over the place in one part of the U.S., now a small part of the U.S., Washington Township, New Jersey, because she's been picked up on surveillance video going through dryers in a laundromat, stealing stuff, and then carrying big bundles of laundry out of the laundromat. The person whose stuff she's taking has obviously gone to run an errand. How do you stop things like this? Do we have to sit and babysit everything that we own? Is petty theft that easy now? Is it, is it acceptable in a way? I mean, it's always been there. This is not a new problem, but shouldn't you have the expectation that, hey, that's my stuff. Keep your hands off my stuff. It's in the wash. Give me a break. You're going to take old wet clothes? To tell you the truth, you want my 20-year-old sweatshirt? You want my socks that I worked out in on Tuesday? You want those? Yeah, sure, you can have those. But give me a break. What are you supposed to do when... All you want to do is wash your clothes. You got to worry whether or not you're even going to have clothes to wear after you attempt to wash them. I don't get it. I don't know what the expectation should happen to be. I do know what we have coming up on the show today, and we have a lot of things that we're going to get to. One thing that is brand new, and it's an initiative that's kind of starting up, and it's one that I hope succeeds. Last week, what were we talking about quite a bit? 75th anniversary of D-Day. And that brings to light, once again, the contributions of men and women in our military. And it seems we need an anniversary, or of course we need Remembrance Day to come around, in order to highlight what the work has meant and what the service has meant of those men and women in our military. Do we spend enough time looking at those individuals after they come back from their service. Some organizations do. For most of us, if you know a veteran, absolutely you do. But if you don't, probably not. Life just goes on, doesn't it? And then a reminder will come up and you'll think, wow, we're pretty lucky to live where we do.
We're pretty thankful for all of those individuals for their service, for those who gave their lives. But there are a number of people in our own community that are in need of some major assistance, whether it's struggles with PTSD, whether it is injuries that they have returned with that really limits what they can do. And when you boil it down, sometimes we're talking about the simplest things, shelter and food, veteran homelessness. We hear about this because it is a growing issue. We've got a housing crisis in a number of different ways, from the cost of housing to not enough affordable housing to now veteran homelessness. But there's another aspect to this. There are a number of Canadian veterans who are at risk of, to use the broad term, food and nutrition insecurity. So maintaining a healthy diet shouldn't be all that difficult, right? Well, What if you don't, A, have the money to do it, B, have the know-how to do it, or three, have the ability to even do it? What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? Well, there's something called Operation Save the Brave. It's brand new, and we're going to be talking with John Sluggett, who is a Legion Service Officer of the London Region, and Wendy Moore, Vice President of our clinic, in about a half hour from now. And I encourage you to listen to what they have to say and listen to what Operation Save the Brave is all about. Some pretty eye-opening statistics have come out from ANOVA on the number of people making use of their services. We're going to talk about that in an hour from now. We are also going to find out about a potential connection if you are looking to have kids. If you are somebody who is hoping to have a child, let's say, in the next year, or you know somebody else who is trying, should they smoke marijuana? And I'm not talking about while pregnant. I mean, while trying to have a baby. Should you smoke marijuana? We're going to have more on whether or not you should. And we'll continue to talk a little bit more about single-use plastics based on yesterday's announcement. Plus, we will get to a few things on the Toronto Raptors. I do want to talk about all of the people who are coming down hard on everybody in the building last night when Kevin Durant of the Golden State Warriors got hurt and there were cheers. First of all, it wasn't everybody. And I think that needs to be pointed out, and it hasn't. It was disgusting that people were waving. There was some moron on screen who was waving and smiling and pointing. And he had a beer in his hand, too. That might have been, go a long way to explaining what was going on. But you have to realize when teams get really popular – You've got a lot of people who have no clue, none, haven't been following anything, but feel a need to be a part of this. And they will put out pictures of themselves and they will, you're not a Raptors fan. You've never been. Hopefully you continue to be a Raptors fan when on a cold night in November, they're playing Charlotte. I hope that that continues for you. I know it won't. This is just what happens. I'm not blaming it, but you've got a lot of people who don't know how sports works. They're the ones who were doing the clapping. They're the ones who were performing and behaving in the wrong way. You don't cheer because somebody is injured. And good job on all of the Raptors players to settle that down and cut it out right away. So more on the Raptors in just a little bit. That's just a little nugget I had to get off my chest. To begin things, we want to look at men's health because this is Men's Health Week. And one of the healthiest Canadians out there is a guy by the name of Adam Creek. But we're going to look at a couple of different things when it comes to men's health and some of the statistics that have come out and the stress levels and what that means. 
But Adam is a guy who takes care of himself for sure. The guy's won Olympic gold in rowing. You don't do that by stepping into a boat and saying, how do I use these things? He's going to join us in a moment. This is Global News Radio as we get underway on a Thursday on London Live. Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We love finding people who put London on the map. Our next guest certainly did that. You want to talk gold medals? I don't know where he keeps all of his, but I'm counting on fingers. I I can't even count as high as how many gold medals Adam Creek has. But we're lucky enough to have him with us right now to talk some men's health because you may have heard a news story here and there about men overworking themselves to death. Well, Adam knows the value of hard work, number one, because, again, you can't get into a boat, say, how do you use these and succeed at an Olympic level? But he also knows the value of sitting back and saying, okay, how do, how do we manage our life here? Please welcome to London Live, Adam Creek. Adam, how are things? Life is good, Mike. Life is good. It's good to be back in London town. <laughs> I, I bet. Now, this is a place that, uh, that you helped to make famous. You're one of many people who do that. When you think of London, what hits you first? Well, Forest City. I don't know what that's... Uh, <laughs> We're still it. Known for. We're still, still the Forest still City. Great trees. I've got good memories of, uh, of the Thames River, of, uh, of Fanshawe Lake as well. I spent a lot of time training there. And obviously, my hometown hood uh, around Westmount, uh, Westmount Mall, Saunders Secondary School. Uh, that was uh, that was where I grew up. Spent a lot of time. Those cold mornings on Fanshawe Lake before the sun even rises, right? You rowers get up early. Oh yeah, we love love the calm water. Love the early mornings, uh, partially because no one else is out there too to to mess up the water. So it's uh, that and. You know, no one has an excuse early in the morning. Usually as days progress, people start getting busy. But, you know, at 5 in the morning, everybody's available to work out. Olympic gold medalist Adam (laughs) Creek joining us. Adam, let's talk about men's health, something that has been near and dear to you. You're a guy who takes care of yourself. We're seeing more and more the topic and the conversations that extend from the words men's health are becoming a little more prevalent. Men are maybe more willing to discuss this, but we are seeing that men sometimes will still push to a a certain level, and and a a recent study showing that's, that's not always a good thing in the end, is it? No, it's not. Uh, you know, the the study said that 81% of men call, find work stressful, and that's that's four out of five men uh, that we found in this uh, in this study. And then uh, 60% are having trouble sleep sleeping because of it. So that's three out of every five men are having trouble uh, sleeping because of stress uh, at work. And uh, I think it's you know, it is important. You know, we're um, I moved on from sporting life. I'm now uh, an executive coach and a, a trainer and got three kids, a minivan, a mortgage, all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, real life stresses uh, can really, you know, penetrate all of our, our lives. And it's important that we, we do small things, you know, we're, we do small things to try and uh, fix this, fix this problem. When you look at small things, we love hearing, first of all, the words small things, because they sound a whole lot easier than really big things, but what would you point to? Is it that work-life balance that we sometimes struggle with, especially, I don't, I don't know about where you're living right now, but certainly in Ontario, I think we really struggle with that. Yeah, well, work-life balance is different for everybody. 
I think when we talk about work-life balance, you have to define what you want out of your life. Uh, you have to decide you know, how you want to live your life and then effectively set boundaries uh, and communicate what you want uh, to your family, to your, your working colleagues, and, and understand that the choices you make uh, have, uh, have, have consequences and, uh, re- and positive results. But when we're talking about taking small things uh, you know, to, make, to make positive change, you know, to push us towards a better lifestyle, it's, again, it's, it's about starting small, park, you know, park a little bit farther away. You know, if you have the opportunity, don't go hunting for the parking spot closest to the door. Park at the other side of the parking lot and, and walk a little farther to the office or get off if you take transit, uh, take off a little uh, one stop earlier and walk a little bit more. Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, small, simple things. If you have a moment of time, instead of picking up your phone and scrolling through Instagram or, or being glued to your screen, take five minutes and just meditate or just be present and, uh, and let yourself recover. And if we do these small little things, you know, throughout our day, they add up to give us more recovery time. And, uh, you know, and stress really comes from, you know, I think partially a lack of, of focused recovery. When I'm an athlete, I need to recover. And I think uh, now that, you know, I'm a professional and I think most guys out there can understand if you don't take time for yourself, you don't take time to recover you're not there for your family. You're not there for your job, and you can't do the things that you that you really care about. We're talking with London's own Adam Creek, Olympic gold medalist in rowing, and also an executive coach. You've been at such a high level in the sporting world, the highest level. You've seen the demands. You've seen how people do that. And then you go into the corporate world where, again, you're dealing with the the highest level. You're dealing with those executives who are, are looking to get to the top of their profession. What similarities do you see in those two worlds? Well, I see a lot of ambition. You know, the, the executives that I work with are very ambitious. They have a lot of drive. They have uh, high goals. Uh, they care deeply about the work they do. They care deeply about the uh, the families that they're raising, and uh, they recognize that by um, that you need they need support uh, to make it to that next level. And uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of like a you know when I when I work with these people, I'm kind of like a, a you know a secret weapon. Uh, I don't talk about my clients or who I work with very much, but uh, it really uh, gives them gives them a boost. But uh, you know, from a like from a, a benefit standpoint, you know, what's the similar similarity between uh, you know the high performance sport and and work? You work, you have to work really hard, and you have to recover. And it's you know it's funny when you look at the top athletes. The top athletes aren't the ones who you know they are the ones who work really hard. Uh, I'm going to say hard work is important, but they're also the ones who are really smart about it, and they. Uh, they manage their downtime properly. They recover effectively. They, they set appropriate boundaries, and uh, it's the same thing. And you know, in the professional world, uh, you know, we even saw it. Um, you know, last night in the Raptors game, uh, you know, Kevin Durant uh, injuring his uh, um, his Achilles again, and uh, you know, same in the professional world. People have have breakdowns. They um, they push themselves really hard because they care about their work. They care about results. Uh, and uh, they care about the people that they um, that they lead, but uh, if you push too hard and you don't uh, don't do the little things properly, then it all unravels and uh, you don't get the results that you that you truly truly want. We're talking about 
health in a number of different ways with Adam Creek. It is Men's Health Week, and there is a study that I'll tweet out a link to that looks at men overworking themselves. And being in the executive world, you must run into people who are stressed to the hilt, probably wouldn't know it until they got to their doctor and realized that their blood pressure was 145 over 95. How do you recognize the signs that say, you know, I need to step back a little bit? Well, usually your, you know, your body starts telling you, giving you the signs. Uh, when you take time to look at yourself, there's, you know, there is being tough and then there's being stupid. And so it's understanding that there's a fine line between the two of them. And it's, and again, it's different for everybody. Um, you know, and, you know, and what we're doing with this men's health campaign, we've got, uh, you know, for men's health week, it's the week before Father's Day, and that's why it is men's health week. Uh, so listeners understand, and it's, it's a great opportunity to speak directly to men and say, Hey guys, uh, let, let's step up. And we also have a great campaign out there. It's a website, don'tchangemuch.ca, and we've got a social media uh, feed as well to give the simple tips. And we, you know, we talk about things, very simple things like drinking water, you know, putting water at your at your desk or at your place of work, and drinking water. Um, and, you know, bringing a home prepared meal to to work. Often, home prepared meals are um, you know are so much healthier than the things that we buy. Uh, when we go out and if we if we take care of the small things one we're going to feel happier today we're going to be healthier today we're going to be stronger today and we're going to get more done today uh and you know and kind of a side benefit is, of this is 10 20 years down the road we'll have fewer incidents of heart disease less type 2 diabetes uh will less obesity less erectile dysfunction uh, less depression, less mental illness. Uh, there's so many benefits to you know, to making small changes to our daily habits. Adam, one last thing, and that is, again, you working with executives now, do you find men more open to change? Do you find them more open to conversation about health? I think men have always been open to conversation about health, but you have to, it's, you know, it is about uh, approaching it properly. You can't ram it down a guy's throat. And it's, um, I'll give a great analogy of my Olympic coach. Uh, my Olympic coach would only give us advice when we asked for it. Uh, and so I think when, when you're dealing with, um, you know, when you're dealing with, with men and you're trying to give them advice, you can't, you can't hammer advice down their throat unless they want it. And, um, I think that's, that's a key, you know, to be there and to be available when, uh, when advice is needed. And it's, you know, what I find interesting in my executive coaching practice, I focus more on, on strategy, helping executives be better leaders, manage their staff more effectively, uh, making sure that they're um, putting focus on the right things that, you know, in, in the business. And then usually after, a, like we've built a relationship over eight months, a year, a year and a half, uh, they go through some kind of health issue. And then that, that's when they start opening up and we start having real conversations. And so I think it's, it's about being patient and uh, recognize recognizing that you know each man out there is going to come to their own conclusion and uh, you know they know their bodies the best and they know what they need to do the best and we just need to, to trust that the men out there are um, are listening to their bodies and listening to to what other health signs and uh, and that's why we're here at Don't Change Much and Don't Change Much CA so that when men say hey you know I think I need to make a little change I think I need to get off you know, get back on the health horse, you know, and 
you know, I'm looking a little flabby in the mirror. I'm feeling like I have a little less energy or I'm less happy than I used to be. Well, it doesn't need to be a, a big change we make in our life. It's, you know, it's the accumulation of small things that make a big difference. It was the same when I was an athlete. It's the same not when I'm uh, an executive coach. And it's the same for every single guy out there. Small things add up to make a big difference. And that's why we have this Don't Change Much uh, campaign. Adam, thanks so much for talking about the campaign with us. And again, happy Father's Day coming up. And anytime you want to come and take a spin around Fanshawe Lake, it's still here for you. Okay, let's do it. Take care. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Adam Creek, Olympic gold medalist, three-time world champion gold medalist at the World Rowing Championships in men's eights, multi-gold medalist at the World Rowing Cup. It's amazing to see what the men's eights were all about as they went through some pretty glory years. Not that they've ever stepped back, but Adam certainly extending what he learned as an athlete and putting it through to the rest of us saying, yeah, you don't have to do much. Maybe that's, I love the campaign name. Do you not love that? Don'tdomuch.com. Oh, okay. I like that. The alternative would be do a whole lot of things right now.com. Nobody's going to pay attention to that. Don't do much.com. We'll take a break. We have news next. And then we're going to talk more about Operation Save the Brave. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You know, one know what's great about working in radio? You. You get this more often than you would think. You get an email like this. Uh, Just a heads up, there are three shirts freezing in the freezer in the lunchroom. Please do not eat them. That's, That's an actual staff email that has just gone around here at Chorus Radio London. Please, and you had to say please, please do not eat them. Shirts. In the freezer. I absolutely love it. Uh, Did get a note. We were talking actually about doing laundry. There's a woman in New Jersey who's been stealing laundry, and they have a picture of her, and they're circulating it, and they're trying to figure out who she is so they can tell her, hey, stop stealing other people's laundry. She went to laundromats. Take it. Uh, Derek said, if you're worried about people stealing your clothes out of washing machines and laundromats, then just look here. And he left a link. And this link actually goes to a site. I'm just clicking on it right now. It says uh, Merino. This is a Merino site. What is Merino? Oh, I see. Uh, We've got clothes that require less laundering. Uh, we, I think you pronounce it Pangea. This is not Pangea. This is not back when the earth was all stuck together. The continents were all stuck together. Pangea or Pangaea? Not sure. They launched it late last year. Just reading the about on the website here. Uh, Counts celebrities like Jaden Smith and Justin Bieber as fans. Aren't one of those guys supposed to be in an MMA with Tom Cruise? Some MMA fight? I don't know. Uh, I'll look that up. But they have seaweed fiber t-shirts. And they apparently, because they're seaweed fiber, keep shirts fresher longer between washes. You know what one of these goes for? I don't like to spend more than 10 bucks on a shirt. I'm wearing a shirt right now that costs $9. I'm not paying this. This is $85 for a shirt. Seaweed fiber. They've got some other shirt that's 128 bucks. Are you going to save that much on washing bills? Really? 
that this shirt will pay for itself? Is that what we're looking for? $42 boxers? All right. I'm out. Clickety-click, I'm gone. But if you don't like doing laundry, there's some underwear and some shirts at least. I don't see any pants here. They don't have any pants. If you don't like doing laundry and also do not enjoy wearing pants, then uh, you should check out Pangaea, P-A-N-G-A-I-A, put together by Merino, M-E-R-I-N-O. Derek, thanks for the tip. I'm going to stick with my $9 shirt right now. Let's take a break. Up next, we are going to learn more about Operation Save the Brave. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We have two very special guests with us right now on London Live. Joining us in studio is John Sluggett. John is the Legion Service Officer of the London Region. We also have with us Wendy Moore, Vice President of our clinic. And they are here to talk with us about Operation Save the Brave. And we mentioned about 10 minutes ago, last week, when you have the 70th, 5th anniversary celebrations and commemoration of D-Day, it's easy to stop and say, you know what, look around us. If what happened on D-Day had not happened our world might be different. And you could trace that to a number of conflicts in world history. You could trace that back to really anything that took place in World War I or World War II. And all of the brave individuals, men and women, who have served in all of those conflicts. And Operation Save the Brave is something that helps to take care of the people who have contributed to our freedom who have sacrificed in major ways. And John and Wendy, we want to thank you, first of all, for being here. John, maybe let's start with what Operation Save the Brave is all about. Well, Mike, it's to help our veterans. Um, what we've discovered over the years as we've uh, evolved is, is that we get our veterans all housed and everything, and they're doing really well, but then... They can't afford their food program. They can't eat. After they've paid the rent, as we all know, OW pays $400, and that doesn't get you an apartment in the London area. So what we've discovered is, is that we have to subsidize or help them with a food program. And are we talking about veterans who have just returned from service? Are we talking about veterans who may have returned from service many years ago? All veterans. Um, what we're finding is, is we have the young ones, we have females, we have males, and we have some older ones. There's some research that was done that uh, found that for some veterans – it takes up to nine years before that food insecurity and sometimes even the homelessness actually shows up. Uh, Veterans Affairs Canada has a lot of really great programs to help veterans transition, but not everybody is successful. About 25% of them don't manage that transition well. And they have all this great support at the beginning. They know who the contacts are. But as the years pass, they start to lose touch with those support networks. So so we have the folks who are freshly released from the military, um, but then we have the folks who've been out for a while who have now hit that wall. And would some of those people have been out of sight and not letting people know that this was an issue in their lives and, and all of a sudden, John, that's discovered? 
Yes. Um, what we find is some, because of their disability and their stress injury, they will just close the door and you won't see them. They won't even leave their rooms or their apartment. So there's an issue there. So how do you deal with that issue? Well, first off, we try to reconnect them with Veterans Affairs. And secondly, we try to start getting them out and socializing them a bit. And once we can get them talking and just relaxing and, and, and coming out, then we can deal with the issues. Now, homelessness becomes one of those issues. We're all looking for ways to to deal with a housing crisis that has so many different outlets, so many different layers to it. How do you deal with that? We're in the process of uh, having a building built. We've uh, down on uh, Trafalgar and Clark and in that area. And we're going to have 10 units in there. That will come online in 2020. But we're also involved in uh, trying to get funding organizations to dedicate X number of units to low income. We're talking right now with John Sluggett, Legion Service Officer for the London Region, and Wendy Moore, Vice President of Our Clinic. And we're talking about Operation Save the Brave. Now, it, it's got to be something that, Wendy, is, is so difficult to, to transition from where some of these veterans were to where they need to be. How do, you, how do you identify what needs to be done for each individual? Because everybody's got to be different. That's one of the things we run into all the time is that folks require um, that individual conversation. So having this, the right conversation with people makes all the difference. And a lot of veterans aren't crazy about talking to civilians. Um, when you look on Facebook, some of the um, Facebook pages that veterans are on, they're constantly posting memes about how this is their face after 15 minutes of talking to civilians. So having folks like John and the Legion is absolutely key because so many of them have served and they know the right questions. If you know the acronyms, if you know the lingo and those kinds of things. We've had a couple of patients at the clinic who have been in a, in a really difficult way financially. And because I have some history with the military, I can go and sit down with them and have conversations that they're comfortable sharing with me. Because an awful lot of them have a pride that is extraordinary. So admitting that they're in difficulty, admitting that they don't know how to cook, that they are um, terrified of going to the grocery store, um, getting them to actually let that out of their system and have a conversation about it, it can be a long haul. And John, when you look at those two items right there, not feeling you know how to cook, not feeling you know how to shop at the grocery store or, hey, let's face it, the bigger the grocery stores get, the more daunting they get as well. How do you assist in that? Well, our approach is going to be three-pronged. If the veteran can get out and handle it and do everything, we will give him a grocery card. If the veteran can't get to the grocery store or can't even go in the grocery store, 
we will go with a grocery list and get him his groceries and deliver them home. If the veteran can't cook, then the plan is is to deliver him a home-cooked meal. Where did this begin? Where did you say, okay, this is something that is certainly needed, but here's how we address this? Well, I guess it was it's a learning process for everybody. When we got in, I found as a service officer and interviewing veterans, a lot of them were not even homeless. They were what we call at risk. And that's a veteran that if we don't intervene, he's going to be homeless. And we found we always had grocery cards for them. That was something that has been going on with the Legion for probably the last 10 years. And we were using them a lot. So then when we got together with Wendy, the idea, and it was mainly her idea about fundraising and getting things going. We also have a veteran that has volunteered to cook. So that's going to be training for him. He suffers from, and he needs to get socialized and everything. So he's volunteered to actually cook the meals and uh, whatnot for the other veterans. If someone might have a family member or a friend that they know of and they think, you know what, this is something that would benefit them, how, how do they even get involved? They can certainly call the Legion. They can call me. My number's uh, available at any time um, through the Legion, and it's on 24-7. They can call, and if I don't have the answer or can't get it, we can certainly find it and help them out. We're talking about Operation Save the Brave, and we're joined by John Sluggett, Legion Service Officer for the London Region, and also with us is Wendy Moore, Vice President of our clinic. When veterans hear about this, because now they have started to hear about this, what do you hear back from them, John? Most of the... Some are still struggling with the idea of asking for help, but... The biggest thing we have found is is that they're starting to get healthy meals and groceries in their fridge. So it's it's in the early stages and but all results look positive. But you think about how simple that sounds still that's that's not simple, not simple to get healthy items, get them into the fridge. No. That's why we have partnered with our clinic, which gives us access to nutritional services and other services that the veterans may need. We just received an email from Sherry, and Sherry says, if somebody wanted to help out, do you accept donations? Absolutely. That's one of the big purposes behind giving it a name, Operation Save the Brave, is to do fundraising so that we can get those grocery cards so that we can um, fill the pantry, basically, so that the, the cook can put meals together that can be delivered. And if people want to donate, they can go to ourclinic.life slash save the brave. And it's all one word, save the brave. It is an amazing initiative. It is helping out in so many ways. You look back at last week, we get a lot of attention about the anniversary of D-Day. And then all of a sudden, we're not talking about our veterans anymore. So thanks for keeping the conversation going. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. In studio with us, John Sluggett, Legion Service Officer, 
of the London region, and Wendy Moore, vice president of our clinic. Thank you both for being here. Asking for help is never an easy thing to do. One of the hardest things to do, but it can be one of the most rewarding things to do if you can find a way to just say, you know what, I, I need some help. We'll take a break. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Coming up in about 15 minutes from now, we are going to talk about a record-breaking year. And when you hear the words record-breaking, it sounds great, doesn't it? And in some ways, this is. This is a positive yet, wait a minute, that's not what we want to hear kind of story. So that's coming up in just a moment. A record-breaking year but not completely great. And that goes back to 2018. We'll fill you in on what that means. We are also going to talk with Dr. Sarah Ilnitsky, and we're going to look at an effect of marijuana. When marijuana became legal, we tried to look at it from a number of different ways. We've had some great conversations on London Live, and we've discussed whether it's effects, whether it's changes, whether it's whether it's even meant anything in society, I you know you don't you don't see it. I thought we would see more. Every once in a while, maybe you catch more of a whiff of it instead of coming from somebody's backyard. It could really be coming from anywhere. But eh, has it has it changed things completely? I think we're a long way away from actually seeing some data on that. But what if you're trying to have a baby? What can marijuana mean? Well, there's been some research done at Western University, which is interesting because anybody who's been through this, if you want to have a baby and you make the decision to start a family, you then try to have that baby. And it's rarely easy. It's not like, hey, we're going to have a baby. And next thing you know, you're telling everybody, hey, pregnant. It's not like that. Sometimes it'll go months. Sometimes it'll go a year. Well, what if you're using marijuana? Does that matter? They actually have some data on that. And we're also going to, yesterday we talked about single-use plastics and a 2021 ban that the government is looking at. We got a lot of thoughts on the people perspective on this. What does it mean for us? Eh, No plastic bags at the grocery store. Uh, Bring your own straw. Not going to find those plastic forks and knives. Stir sticks are going to be a little different. Maybe they'll be back to popsicle sticks. Don't know. What about the animals? What if animals could react to that announcement yesterday? How exactly would they react? We're going to discuss that in a little over a half hour from now. All of that straight ahead as London Live continues. News is on the way next. We do have Blue Jays baseball for you coming up tonight. The Jays are opening up a brand new series against the Baltimore Orioles. Trent Thornton is back on the mound. Both teams looking for a little bit of a spark as they get going in Baltimore. And if you're headed on Thursday, I do want to make mention, if you're going to the Hamilton Ticats Home opener, season opener on Thursday. That was listed as a 7.30 start. It's now 7 o'clock start if you're headed there in person. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Mentioned not too long ago that we've got some things in the freezer here at work. Shirts, 
and we all got an email saying, please don't eat them. I don't even want to know why. I no idea why they're there. No idea why we're not supposed to eat them. And no idea, while we're talking about eating things, why this has to be a thing. You ready? Kraft announced yesterday that they have come out with a new product. And I've checked this. This is not a story from some kind of made-up thing, okay? This this is not a joke story. This is not fake news. This is not anything like that. This is a, a real thing. So you ready for this? I want you to picture salad, okay? You eat salad. Hopefully you eat a little bit of salad. It's a good way to get vegetables. can be very delicious. Lots of different ways to make salad. We have a new product coming out, and it's aimed at kids. And it's, I'm just going to say it. It's salad frosting. Really? Yeah. Uh, You can look around. This has been everywhere. Here it is on NBC. Here it is on CNN. I believe it's only available in the States at this point. Uh, Here it is on Today, Fox News, uh, a few other spots. So, again, not a fake story. Salad frosting. Apparently, it's encouraging kids to eat salad by, instead of calling it salad dressing, calling it salad frosting. Because research has stated that 75% of kids in America eat salad just once a week. And that you can, quote, uh, not feel bad telling your kids this lie. Hmm. Um, it's one kind of frosting, it's ranch dressing, and somehow this is supposed to be disguised as vanilla frosting. I don't know if you've ever had vanilla and ranch side by side. They smell nothing alike. Not even close. Nope. No, you can't, you cannot hand a child something that is supposed to be vanilla and have it be ranch and have them say, hmm. Instead, they're more likely to say, what does that smell? Ranch dressing is not a good smell. Come on. It's not. It's not exactly Caesar dressing, but ranch dressing, not a good smell. Uh, It is apparently the most popular dressing in the United States, and uh, it's not overly healthy, as a matter of fact, but it's a limited edition product. And it's part of something where Kraft is trying to get parents to tell their best parent lies. So this looks more like a publicity stunt than anything else. And they're kind of saying that it is. But seriously, is this is this what we want to do? You don't have to tell kids that there's frosting on your salad. In fact, that's a bad lie. If I were to hand a five-year-old a pile of stuff and say, hey, there's there's frosting on this salad, and they took a bite of it, they would say, no, there isn't. That's not frosting. That tastes like something completely dead. I don't get this. You don't have to lie to your kids to get them to do something. You know what you have to do? Uh, treat them as intelligent humans, because that's typically what they are. Explain to a child, you know, this is why we do this, and here's the consequence if you don't, and... You know, at five, they're not necessarily going to break down consequences, but they'll get the picture. And if they see you doing it, they're more likely to do it themselves. 
Give me a break. Salad frosting? Keep it for the publicity stunt, but in a year, I hope this isn't out there on the market. In about two minutes, we're going to talk about something that, that sounds very, very good, and in a way... It's nice to know that there is somebody there handling the demand that we have in our community. But when we use the words record-breaking, we're not talking about stronger, higher, faster in this case. We're not talking about Olympic feats. We're talking about something very different that probably needs to be looked at in our community in the way of how do we help? How do we make changes? That's next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. I'm going to read you a headline, and it's going to sound like, wow, that's that's great. And in a way, there is a positive to it, but here it is. ANOVA sees record numbers in 2018. Record numbers. Now, ANOVA is there in order to deal with everything that is going on with people who come and seek them out for help. Record numbers in 2018. What kind of sense do we make of those record numbers, of that line? Well, we're joined right now by somebody who can help us to make some sense and to understand what this means in our community. Jesse Roger is the executive director of ANOVA, which is formerly Women's Community House and Sexual Assault Center. And right now it stands as Ontario's largest shelter and largest sexual assault center. Jesse, thanks so much for being here on London Live. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's talk about what it means to see record numbers in 2018. Uh, well, I think what it means is that a couple of things are happening. One, um, the good side is that it means that um, women-identified folks know that we're here to help. And so they know that ANOVA, at ANOVA we are the, the experts in gender-based violence and we're here to help them, um, whether that's a call on our crisis line or accessing space in one of our two shelters um, or um, accessing a sexual assault counseling through a sexual assault center. So that's, that's the good news is that people know that we're there and they're accessing us. Um, the, the flip side to that is the massive number of people who are coming and um, the required resources that we need to be able to make sure that everybody gets served in a timely fashion. And I think that's the, um, the, the balance with that um, of the, the record, the record uh, numbers that you're talking about. You are the largest shelter. You are the largest sexual assault center in the province. Do you have enough space for the demand that you are seeing? Um, the short answer is no. Um, in the last year, um, staff at ANOVA had to turn away uh, women 2,553 times. So that's roughly um, a no every three and a half hours um, to somebody who calls and needs safe space. So um, that's uh, it's a huge problem. And um, in the absence of being able to offer somebody a, a shelter bed, we have to do safety planning over the phone. We have to do risk assessments with them um, instead to, to figure out what's a, a, a best second option until a, a bed does um, does open up for them to come in and stay with us. Let's look back at those numbers for just a second. Yeah. You have to say no once every three and a half hours. Yeah, that's roughly what it comes out to, yes. Or take other measures in order to provide somebody with assistance. How do you mm-hmm. interpret that? 
Well, I interpret that in that um, women are in crisis, right? Like violence against women and girls is a very real issue that's happening in our community. I think um, it's also an issue that we've we've talked about in the in the media over the past couple of years, especially with the rise of the of the Me Too and Times Up movement of saying that um, violence against women identified folk is wrong and it's okay to speak up and you're supported to speak up. Um, but if we're going to say that to folks, we need to respond with resources. We need to make sure that there's people to answer that phone. We need to make sure that counseling um, for, for survivors is not weeks and months away, that it's it's when they need it. And so that's for me is that this is happening in our own community. This happened to our neighbors. It's happening to our, our friends, our family members. Um, this is, it, it touches us all, right? So we need to really, as a community, know that and then uh, now comes the, the call for action. We're talking with Jesse Roger, Executive Director <laughs> with ANOVA. And as Jesse pointed out, ANOVA seeing record numbers in 2018 has a positive to it in that they were there to help so many people. But the flip side is there were so many people to help. And as Jesse has told us, there isn't enough space. There isn't enough of uh, in terms of beds or or shelter resources in order to bring everybody in who who wants to come in where does your funding come from um, so we get funding from all levels of government. We get funding from the city of London, uh, from the province of Ontario, as well as um, as as well as uh, from from our community. Um, and uh, we we work with all of those stakeholders uh, really carefully to make sure that even in those moments where we're not able to offer somebody a shelter bed, they're still getting top notch service and making sure that they get um, what they need from us to be as safe as possible. And it would probably be easy to say this is just a funding issue. Um... Probably not, though, isn't it? No, I think it's uh, this is the, the issue is that uh, gender-based violence is not a, a single issue. Um, it, it touches everything, right? And so this is not just ANOVA's um, cause to, to speak up against. Um, this is this, this belongs to everybody. Um, it impacts it impacts all of us in different ways, and impacts us in some ways that we might not um, recognize and see. So uh, I think it's it's important to recognize that yes, absolutely, we need we need more help with with paying the you know being able to pay for the services and being able to have the resources that we need. But we also need to be able to have an honest conversation in our community about um, about violence against um, women and girls, about gender-based violence and intimate partner violence. Do you think we're having more of those conversations, or do we need to do better? Uh, well, we always need to do better, but we're, we're encouraged by what we're seeing locally. So um, you may remember uh, in this past uh, winter, London became the first city council to adopt a pillar in their strategic plan that focuses on ending violence against women and girls. So uh, being the first community in Canada to do that is really exciting, um, and we're really proud of our city council for voting unanimously for that. Um, but now we want to make sure that the action follows that and that when our city council looks uh, yearly at how they're doing on their strat plan, they're able to see that we're moving the needle. And so making sure that everybody knows that um, we all have a responsibility in, in making sure that that pillar is addressed and that um, we continue to have conversations about when we make decisions um, that we're always doing with a gender-based lens, thinking of how it impacts women-identified folks, think of how it, it, it impacts kids, um, so that we can make sure that we transform our city over the next four years into a safer space for, for everyone. Jesse, thanks so much for the work you do. Thanks for the time today. Yes, thanks so much. Bye. Take care. That's Jesse Roger, Executive Director of ANOVA. So record numbers means people are identifying, yeah, ANOVA is a place that can help. Record numbers also means... 
in times of crisis, sometimes you have to look at alternatives. And when you're having to say, "Mm, we can't accommodate that once every three and a half hours, that's something we've got to look into in, as Jesse points out, a number of ways. We'll take a break. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you are looking at effects of marijuana, you don't necessarily look at conception as being something that it affects, do you? Uh, We're going to look at that right now. Dr. Sarah Ilnitsky is with Western University and is part of a study that has examined some effects on fertility and marijuana. Dr. Ilnitsky, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. We've tried to look at marijuana from as many angles as possible. We've talked about the legalization. We have talked about edibles. We've looked at criminal aspects to it. Uh, Never yet, at least, have we looked at a fertility aspect, because to tell you the truth, I don't think we knew there was one, but you found one. Yeah, basically that's kind of, well, we found what we think may be a connection. And I think there's always been that um, kind of old adage that marijuana might be bad for sperm. I know I, I had at least heard it kind of colloquially at some point, but when it, when it was legalized back in October as physicians, specifically fertility doctors and um, hormone specialists, which is what my co-author, Dr. Van Oom, is, we thought we should probably look into what the actual scientific basis of that was and what, how much information was really available. And we found out there wasn't actually a lot. Okay. And now, well, at least there is a little bit more. One thing you have been able to do is kind of look at five different points about marijuana and fertility. So anybody who's hoping to have a child or start a family in the very near future, this one is for you. What exactly did you uncover? So the first thing we uh, thought was important to highlight was that the receptors for uh, cannabinoids, which are what THC, the active ingredient in marijuana is, we can actually find them in a lot of different um, areas of of the human body that are important for reproduction. So they're in the um, hormone um, glands within the brain that... um, tell your uh, reproductive organs to make um, sperm and to make eggs. Um, they're in the, uh, the testes and the ovaries that make sperm and eggs. Um, and they're within the transport systems within our reproductive tissues. So because they're there, we assume that, they, that if you add um, an outside cannabinoid like THC, there could be some impact on how those um, organs actually work. Interesting. Now, you would almost think that would be a, a positive if you've got them there already and then you're adding more. Wouldn't, wouldn't it help? Is there any connection that way? Well, what we know from some basic science um, research is that it's actually a very fine balance. So there are receptors for the, for the cannabinoids, there are the cannabinoids themselves, and then there are enzymes that can either synthesize um, those naturally within our own bodies um, and can degrade them. And it's a really fine balance in the different tissues um, that are important for reproduction. So, um, and our bodies are very good at maintaining that balance because it's a natural system that we're used to using. Um, but when you add an, an outside cannabinoid like THC, you can throw that balance off, and that's what we worry about. Mm, okay, we're talking with Dr. Sarah Ilnitsky, and we're looking at Fertility and marijuana, something that has been looked at by fertility specialists at Western University. So let's let's deal with sperm count right away. 
would using marijuana affect sperm count in any way? So the one study that we thought was important to um, talk about in this uh, this article is one um, out of Denmark, and they looked at men who had smoked marijuana um, in the the three months before they took their sperm samples, and they actually found a 30% reduction in total sperm count in these men that had used the drug. Now, that being said, when they looked at um, the the sperm counts, so there's a specific um, level that we considered to have, if you're below that, you have a low sperm count. And smoking marijuana didn't actually drop any of those men below that level, but it, they did find that 30% reduction in the number of sperm. Okay, mm-hmm. and then how about if we look at the female population? Do we know anything about what might happen with ovulation? So we know a little bit. So women are a lot harder to study because we don't have an easy way to test uh, ovulation or their reproductive function like sperm count in men. But um, there was a study that looked at just ovulation hormones, and it only included 30 women that actually were smoking marijuana on a fairly regular basis. Um, But in those women, it did show that their ovulation was delayed a little bit. So it kind of threw their cycle off somewhat. Hmm. So if you are looking at it and and trying to kind of make assessments of this, you mentioned that marijuana would not drop someone's sperm count down below that, that low level. But what if somebody was having difficulty conceiving? What if somebody maybe did have a low sperm counter? Or what if somebody did not have a, an ovulation that, that made them fertile or, or especially fertile? I don't know what kind of medical term that is. I don't think it's very medical at all. But I hope you get what I'm, I'm going after. Does that have an impact? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there was a study in the U.S. that um, looked at couples just in the general population who had no um, underlying infertility um, and kind of looked at their how often they were using marijuana um, and then did some calculations, and it showed that the, it didn't take couples who were using marijuana any longer to get pregnant than couples that weren't using marijuana. So in the general population, based on this, big, this fairly large study, we, it doesn't seem to have an effect. And we don't have studies on the infertility or the subfertility population, but that is what we worry about. So if you think about it, if a couple's already having a bit of trouble, then you drop the sperm count by 30%, and then you maybe throw the ovulation off a little bit. Um, it could just compound already or pre-existing um, problems. And when you look at the number of things that people are willing to do in order to make sure they give themselves every chance to conceive if they're trying to have children, yeah, I mean, headstands are out there, and there are all <laughs> kinds of things that go on. You want to make sure that you're doing everything as right as possible. You mentioned early on as, as a final point, Dr. Olnitsky, that we don't have a lot of information about this. Do we need more research on this? We absolutely do, and I think part of what we were hoping with this article was that we will um, prompt other researchers and other uh, universities and organizations to look more deeply into the effect of marijuana on fertility. Well, it is a great start. Thank you for getting the conversation going, and thank you for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Sarah Ilnitsky, clinical fellow at Western University on an initial paper regarding research on fertility and marijuana use. We'll take a break. News is on the way next. And then, yesterday, we got a lot of your thoughts on single-use plastic bans. And we're going to examine how Europe's handling it, but here's the other thing we're going to do. We're going to look at this from the animal's perspective. Bear with me. And I didn't mean that as a pun. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
Banning single-use plastics. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. We're going to look at it from an animal's perspective in a minute. And I don't want you to say, oh, yeah, the bleeding hearts, the animals. Okay, well, I don't know about you, but if you screw up the food web, um, you've got a big problem on your hands. And we're doing a pretty good job of that. We've got a lot of creatures that go extinct pretty much on a daily basis. A lot of them don't exist within our food web. And I don't want to be eating chips and pop and whatever else uh, for the rest of my life. Food web, not a bad thing. So if you're looking at the impact on animals, we're going to do that in just a moment. But we'll see how things work out for Canada and the single-use plastic ban. Overall, it's not a lot that it touches that you can't get over. Plastic bags, like we talked about yesterday, that's a ridiculous thing. Why do we even have those? There's no point in having plastic bags. There are way better ways to do it, whether it's the bags that we've now come to all purchase without even realizing it. Hey, going to get groceries, did, did you grab the bags? Did you grab the plastic bin? That's a question that we all ask. Oh, I forgot the bin again. Forgot the bags. Well, it's only five cents a plastic bag, and that's the way we do it. Then you bring these things home, and I don't know, you take your lunch in it. I don't know what happens to them after that. But from there, you've got drinking straws, which all of a sudden have become evil incarnate, and no one's allowed to use drinking straws, and everybody has reusable drinking straws. We have some in our house, and I didn't like them at first. I don't mind them now. I don't even notice them. We've got this kind of rubbery one. That's mine. I really I, That's one that I can deal with. The metal ones that are really cold all the time, eh, I don't know. But the rubbery one, yeah, as weird as that sounds, don't make any jokes. And what else are we talking about? Plastic forks and spoons and knives. We can get away with that. We don't need those. And stir sticks, plastic stir sticks. Go back to the popsicle sticks. So when we look at European countries, they, of course, have been looking at things far longer than we have. We used to get our TV shows from Europe. We used to get our TV shows from the U.S. Our fashion came from the U.S. Our fashion came from Europe. And we kind of followed behind. We're doing that. Again, European member states have set benchmarks whereby in 2025, at least 25% of plastic bottles will need to be made of recycled material. And then by 2029, they want that up to 90%. They have pretty stringent labeling requirements, things like wet wipes, tobacco filters, sanitary towels, uh, coffee filters, all those sorts of things, food and beverage containers. It doesn't look like we're going to go quite that far in Canada. If you look back to 2015, the European Commission laid out all kinds of measures, and then they just received a final report that they're implementing 54 of those measures, and plastic pollution, part of that. So this is happening around the world. Canada has stepped up and has decided to join in. What about the animals? We're, we're going to look at it from their perspective. If the animals could have reacted to yesterday's announcement from the federal government, how would they have reacted? We're not going to go arm in arm and pretend that we're in the jungle book, nothing like that. But we'll get at least a little bit of insight into how animals are having to deal with plastic and what some of the concerns are in the wild and in the ocean when we come back. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Single-use plastic bans. 
We have them all over the place. Looks like by 2021 we'll have one in Canada. Let's get a perspective that we typically do not get. Sarah Winterton joins us right now. Sarah is the director of Nature Connected Communities with the World Wildlife Fund. Sarah, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Not bad. Yesterday, when the federal government announced plans to ban single-use plastics by 2021, we had maybe some mixed reaction that came into London Live. We had Paul, who was wondering what this was going to mean, how many things the government was going to get their hands on in terms of kind of raising the prices of things. Uh, Richard talked about recycling programs and how we could do things better. We had a number of different angles. If we were able to get a call, an email, get a, a, a tweet from, let's say, a wild animal of some kind, or someone who lives in the ocean like a fish, what do you think they would have been saying? I think they would have been saying, about time, this is my home too, um, and I'm tired of like swimming or walking through all of your garbage, human beings. Um, That's a great answer. Yeah, and I don't blame (laughs) them at all. I mean, we don't spend a lot of time in our oceans. You might go on a trip and, well, look, we'll we'll go scuba diving and we'll see what's down there. Even then, it's not giving you all that great a look at things. What is the issue with plastic and our oceans? Well, what we're finding, sadly, is that plastic. Uh, waste plastic. So plastic pollution is ubiquitous. We're finding it in our freshwater ecosystems. We're finding it throughout our ocean ecosystems. Um, If, you know, you go north, you go south, um, we're finding plastic pollution. We're finding plastic pollution on the floor of the ocean. We're finding it floating around. And it can be in large pieces or more of most concern is 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 the very tiny pieces of plastic and even the plastic that we can't see but we can detect, um, you know, through analysis. So it's the fact that it is everywhere and it is tremendously difficult, if not impossible, to get out of the ecosystem once it's there. We're starting to hear that term more and more, the microplastic term, which maybe we haven't talked about much. You see the pictures of the plastic bags or you see this big kind of pile of floating debris that we see every once in a while, but those microplastics, what exactly are they doing that becomes so dangerous? Well, I mean, there are different, you know, a description, there are microplastics that are very tiny that you can't see, and that might be uh, plastics that come off of um, polyester clothing or something like that that gets into the system, and you can't see that, right? There's very tiny fibers. Um, and then you get um, plastics that have just broken down from whatever their initial use use was. They've they've been broken down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And those those bits of plastic that you um, that you can't tell what was it before, um, they look very enticing to can look very enticing to wildlife and, and as food, and and they eat it. Um, and a steady diet of like microplastics is really not good for any animal and and they often die from from that kind of ingestion um, this is, and this is one of the you know big concerns um, in terms of impact on wildlife not only ingestion and and start literally starving to death with a belly full of plastic um, and also entanglements and the way animals can get caught up 
in uh, and and can't get out of of being entangled in in different kinds of plastics and or other you know ocean litter and uh, and dye. We're talking. Um, with... Or you... oh, sorry, go ahead. I was saying, and and you know, people are probably familiar with the the photos we've seen of seals that have actually grown up with forming their body around like uh, a piece of plastic that's encircling them. That's you know they've got caught caught in it hasn't killed them right away, but their their body is misshapen because they've they've uh, grown up um, around it. Sarah Winterton with us, director of Nature Connected Communities with World Wildlife Fund. You were at the announcement yesterday. It's always one of those things where you think, okay, this is this is good. We've got a lot of buzzwords going around that, that make this a, a key topic to be involved in. But how concerned are you that we might not get what they say we're going to get? I feel very hopeful about about this announcement because, um, first of all, they're talking about things that have um, an e- they're easily replaced um, with non-plastic items, um, and also we've got the the research is is out there. The it, the uh, we we know the extent of the problem. Um, well, probably not the full extent of the problem, but we know we have a big problem on our hands, and we know that uh, reduction of single-use plastics is one of the first things that we need to do. Um, you know, we, uh, we run a program where we're out there every year and we're picking up this stuff off of our shorelines and out of our, you know, parks and things like that. So we, we know from that perspective that there is a, a lot of plastic uh, pollution out there. Um, and so we've, we've make that contribution to the data and, and showing how many millions of kilograms we're even picking up. Um, through our Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup. So we know there is a big problem, and that's all available for people to see, for, uh, for um, you know, for, to contribute to a, a positive response and keeping, the, keeping these products out of the environment in the first place. Sarah Winterton with us, Director of Nature Connected Communities with World Wildlife Fund. How useful would it be for anyone who might be listening now thinking, come on, I mean, you know, let's let's keep it about us. Let's let's forget about the animals. Everybody's always saying, oh, remember the animals, oh, remember the fish. But how useful would it be for someone to go on one of those, you know, one of those cleanups and realize just what it looks like? Very, uh, very useful. It's quite eye-opening when you go out and you start uh, participating and picking it up. Um, one of the things we hear a lot from from volunteers is that they didn't notice before. They, you know, they look around um, a park or along a shoreline and think, "Oh, it looks pretty clean." But then once you start walking and looking, you start to see the tiny bits of plastic. You start to see the cigarette butts. You start to see the things. Um, that shouldn't be there on the shoreline. And, um, and once you start to see one, you just see how much of it is there. And, and it's very satisfying. It's a massive contribution to help, help pick it up so that we can keep it out of, out of the environment. Um, here in the Great Lakes, uh, we're, we're focused this summer really on making that connection between the Great Lakes and our flow of fresh water and out through the St. Lawrence River down to the Atlantic Ocean. We have a direct conduit from the Great Lakes through the St. Lawrence out to the Atlantic. So, um, you know, if we want to be protecting our, our uh, the quality of our oceans and keeping waste plastic and other forms of litter out of our ocean, we can start right here uh, at home in the Great Lakes uh, with what we're, you know, what we can pick up and stop uh, here. Um, and it's very important to do that.
Finally, Sarah, it's one thing for a government initiative to come about, but what are you hearing from industry even before we get to 2021? Is there anything that leads you to believe that change may be coming in in any part of the industry world? I think that there's that there is uh, some positive change happening, and um, the connection is being made, and the opportunity is out there to make changes in the whole sort of a supply chain and the process around how things are made so we can limit limit um, that impact. Um, so I think we've got to, you know, really reinforce um, that this is what we are looking for as consumers and as citizens and as people who are concerned about the environment and and the health of of nature for other for wildlife. Um, and you know, send that message out there that we you know we expect to solve this problem together. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Sarah Winterton, Director of Nature Connected Communities with the World Wildlife Fund. Good note from James. James says, my concern is that legislation won't be strong enough. If air conditioning is a sin, then plastics is right there on the same level. We do not need plastics, and it will be our legacy of shame. Strong words, but I think that's accurate. You know, I'm... I'm picking up a pen. It's plastic. My cup in front of me is plastic. The case on my phone is plastic. It is absolutely everywhere. The button that I use to turn on and off the microphone is plastic. This phone is plastic. It is everywhere. It'll be interesting to see 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, the manufacturing process of all of this and what will have changed and what will remain the same. Let's take a break. Up next... How many times do you think there has been a Game 7 overtime hero in the National Hockey League? In amongst all of the Raptors and the Golden State Warriors and all of the Jurassic Parks and Dundasic Parks in our midst, we do have Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final tomorrow. How many times do you think there's been a Game 7 overtime hero? Rack your brain. Not just an overtime hero like Patrick Kane or Alec Martinez did it for the Kings. A Game 7 overtime hero. That and a couple of words on the Raptors to close out the show. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. More on the Raptors in just a second. If you're a Raptors fan, don't be too sad today. Don't be too sad. I'll tell you why. But here's the answer to that question. How many times has Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final gone to overtime? If I told you there have been 16 Game 7s so far, that would help because not every one of them would have gone to overtime. It's happened twice. That's it. And the overtime heroes, Pete Babando and Tony Leswick. Both of the Detroit Red Wings. Red Wings, the only team in NHL history ever to capture the Stanley Cup in overtime. I don't have any inside information about tomorrow night between the Bruins and the Blues, but I'm just thinking, it's long overdue. And the games tend to be really close. Nathan Lafayette of the Vancouver Canucks hit the post in 1994. That would have forced overtime against the Rangers, and maybe to this day, had that shot gone in instead of off the post and had the Canucks won it in overtime, life would be different in Vancouver. But you wouldn't, you'd wouldn't. you have those chants of 1940 back. The Leafs wouldn't be the longest-running team not to win the Stanley Cup. It would still be the Rangers, 1940. So made a big difference back then. As for the Raptors, 
we talked off the start of the show. Uh, the fans, remember, who cheered Kevin Durant being injured, they're not real basketball fans. They're, we have people who jump on and get involved just because it's the hottest thing. It's only because the team is winning. They have not been there through the highs and lows. Best thing to do if you're going to be a sports fan, pick a team, root for that team, pick a sport. You can even start now with the Raptors, but you've got to hang on. You've got to go through the highs and lows. You've got to watch them lose to Charlotte on a chilly night in November and say, you know what, that's okay. I can, I can handle that. You've got to watch them go through a rebuild. That's part of the fun. Those are the people who are really enjoying what is going on right now. The rest of them, it's like going to a birthday party. That's it. And they're the ones who have no clue what's going on in sports. None. They don't know how they work. They have no idea. And they're the ones who were cheering Kevin Durant at the beginning. Good on the Raptors players to quiet that down. But there isn't a concern. You know, last night's a hard game to win because your fans are there and they're expecting it. And you can say, yeah, but these are professionals. Professionals, whatever. That's, that has nothing to do with it. You know what these are? People. They can be all the professionals they want. Down deep, they're people. They wanted that last night. They wanted to make it happen. It didn't happen. Now they get a chance to get on the plane, get away. Golden State is as banged up as any team has been in the finals ever. So they're a team that's still trying to do things with silly string and scotch tape. They're trying to figure out what to do next. So the Raptors still have that going for them. They've won twice in Oakland. That's not going to be one of those uh uh-oh moments when they step on the floor. Nothing to worry about if you're a Raptors fan. Enjoy it. Enjoy tomorrow night. But if you're a Raptors fan and not a sports fan yet, maybe just just simmer down just a little bit. Just, Just act like you've been there before. That's the best advice you can get, whether you are competing in sports or whether you're watching them. Act like you've been there before. Just, just simmer down a bit, cheer, be nice, be respectful. We had tours going through of all the late-night talk shows, seeing how polite Canadians were. I think it was Jimmy Kimmel show tried to get Canadians to trash talk Golden State, and they couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. That was good stuff. That's us. Let's, let's maintain that image, shall we? Coming up tomorrow on the show, we are going to begin to cover what is happening this weekend in St. Mary's with the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony. So we'll have the details that you need on all of that. And plus, Brandon Prust will be a part of the show tomorrow. So lots ahead on London Live. News is on the way next. Thanks to Kelly Wong for all of her help. London Live is brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. You are listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.